The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Tēnā koutou katoa, my name is Toby Manhire. This is a special one-off extra bonus episode of Gone by Lunchtime. Normal service will return next time. Christopher Finlayson, or Chris Finlayson as he is more commonly known, but Christopher Finlayson on the front of his new book, Yes Minister, which surveys his time as Attorney General and also as Minister for Spies and Minister for Arts and in the government of John Key, an insider's account of the John Key years is the second part of the title on his book, published by Alan Unwin. He came into the studio on Wednesday, August 16th, to talk about the book, to talk about his career, and to talk about, of course, Ben Thomas. Thank you to T.I. Hare Butler for producing this episode, and thanks especially to members. Uh, we are only able to do podcasts like this because of the support of members. Do click through from the site and support us if you can. Kia ora, welcome, Chris Finlayson. Thank you very much. Or should it be Christopher Finlayson? That's what it says on no, the, it's the a very, cover. it's a very long name, so Chris. Well, this is obviously an issue of great importance at the moment with the current leader of the National Party. He's Christopher, Chris I think. Or Christopher. I don't think he ever re- refers to himself as Chris. He does. He does? Yes, at one point, he, I think he was rebranded as Chris. Oh, okay. But now it sort of seems to be lost in between. It seems, he seems more like a Christopher, but I don't know. I don't know. Well, I am a Chris. I'm a, I'm a very definitely a Chris. And does anyone call you Christopher? Sometimes people do when they're being very formal. (laughs) (laughs) I want to start with the big issues. The the biggest issue of all. I would have thought that was an important issue. No, this one is even bigger. Mm. And it is um, Ben Thomas, the popular pundit and someone who podcasts on Gone by Lunchtime regularly. Uh, He speaks about you a lot, talks a lot about his time. You have given him one paragraph in your book. Oh, that's interesting because I, it's by no means a deliberate omission. Ben is a very, very smart guy mm. and um, delightful, whimsical sense of humour. And we had, I just had an extraordinary team. I mean, you hear all these allegations at the moment by people like Dr. Sharma mm. about bullying and dysfunctional offices. I just had this extraordinary office where my chief of staff was Richard May, who was an absolute delight. Mm. I refer to James Christmas, who was probably the brightest person I've ever worked with, and Ben Thomas, who was delightful, who used to save my neck on a number of occasions. So um, it may only be one paragraph, but it's a very good paragraph, and my memories have been a very positive. It is an effusive paragraph, that's true. Um, he is quite rude about Wellington. I wondered whether that was why you only kept him to one paragraph. Whereas you're a Wellingtonian born bred. Oh, I'm very rude about Wellington. <laughs> I'm very rude about the Wellington City Council because I'm sick of driving down Arrow Street, for example, and seeing geysers emerge. And they've, you know, they concentrated on being the cutest little capital and all that nonsense, mm. but they didn't get the basics. And I, I don't blame the current council, I blame them for a lot, but intergenerational negligence in relation to the running of the city council is a major issue. But I am a Wellingtonian, I can't change. Uh, my views on the city. I love it very much. And you get up to the top of Mount Kaukau and you look down on the city and with apologies to the English poet whose name I temporarily forget, Earth has not anything to show more fair. You mentioned Gaurav Sharma and we are speaking as the Labour caucus, I think, a meeting via Zoom 
to discuss his future in the party. And the last week has had a few unsavoury storylines from both sides of the aisle in mm. terms of that strange, which I think one thing that brings them together is the strange role that an MP is. It's a strange occupation. Your boss is the electorate. Your managers are someone else. You've got a strange person with the title of a whip that pulls you into line. Did it come naturally to you being an MP? No, it's a, it is a strange position and it is what you make it. For example, and a lot of my colleagues I know thought I was and am a geek, hmm. but I was interested in the legislative side of it. I was really interested when Lynn Pillay, who was then MP for Waitakere and chair of the Justice Committee, uh, said to the Justice Committee one day, look, we've got this bill, the evidence bill, coming into the committee. It's very technical. I really think that we should have a subcommittee. Mm. And so Russell Fairbrother, who was a Labour List MP, Nandor Tanchos, the Green MP, Richard Worth and I formed this little subcommittee and we really did some good work on the Evidence Act. And I was talking to a judge about it at lunchtime. I said, how is the Evidence Act going? Fabulous piece of work. So that's the sort of thing I liked. Mm. And, I th and, and I think no less a luminary than Geoffrey Palmer said something exactly the same. MPs are legislators. A lot of what they do is tough and technical. Mm. But too often, um, I think MPs are expected to be glorified social workers. Annette King would sit in a caravan in Rongatai listening to people's complaints and then contact the city council and say, it's your problem. So I think there are too many MPs who get the wrong idea of what their role is and, and, and therefore they don't achieve their potential. But that's a useful, important, maybe critical function for a local electorate MP, isn't it? To be that kind of conduit from people on the ground through to the halls of power. Well, you see, I don't necessarily think so. Hmm. I mean, I enjoyed, I stood in Rongatai and got my head kicked in on a regular basis, but the only real area that I enjoyed working in was on the Chatham Islands. Hmm. So I helped get a uh, you know, new water supply up the north and I got a new barge for Pitt Island and stuff like that, and it was enjoyable. But um, I felt actually I was doing something, but simply sitting in an office listening to... Uh, in many instances, nutters complain to me about something. It's not something that turned me on. And I, I mean, there are some who, they enjoy that side of it. I hated it and I was no good at it and I didn't want to do it. And I, I say in the book, um, I asked Jack Marshall once when he was the patron of the Victoria University Debating Society. I said, mm. well, Sir John, did you ever do constituency work when you were MP for Karori? Of course not. They can look after themselves. The joke that you quote in the in the book that is if if Chris Finlayson were to win the seat of Rongatai, he would demand a recount. Yeah, it, actually, I have to confess that is not original. Uh, there was a fellow called William Buckley who wrote God and Man at Yale, uh -huh. and he stood for the mayoralty of New York once as a conservative. So you can imagine he was uh, expecting to get no votes. He was asked, conservatively speaking, how many votes do you expect to get? He said one. Uh, and he was the one who maintained that if he won the New York mayoralty, the first thing he would do is demand a recount. So breach of copyright, um, I fully claim that, but it's a good line. <laughs> and, and Annette King's line, which you also quote against yourself, was that every person you would meet in the constituency would increase her majority. <laughs> yes, that's true. And I think Winnie Laban said something similar. <laughs> you, um, I mean, you have a distinctive deadpan, maybe sardonic, style and, and early on in the book you say tongue heavily in cheek that your main fault was doing too many things. Yeah. Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, I'd be no good being like Paula Bennett on the front page of Women's Weekly or walking down the beach with my dog or anything. I just I'm just not that kind of person. I am a private person. I found public life a somewhat difficult task, mm. uh, and but I just wanted to do a couple of things. And I was mindful of what Peter Norrish, whom you may remember, was the professor of French at Victoria. He said to me one day when I was trying to do too much, do a few things and do them well. So you can't change the world. You're never going uh, to be able to do all that you want to do, but try and do two or three things and then move on. And we'll talk, talk about those 
in a moment because there are some pretty impressive achievements on your CV from your time in Parliament. On the National Party, which you touch on there with Paula Bennett and the different personalities that attracted, you talk about the brand being destroyed in those in those bad years, uh, most of which was followed your departure, not suggesting there was a causal relationship between <laughs> those things. Um, and then you go on to say that you feel as though it's torn, turned a corner with the new leader. Well, we talked about briefly Sam Uffendale and uh, what's happened there. Does that suggest that the same problems are there? I'm thinking not so much in terms of the people who are attractive because of the personality, but the kind of people that are emerging into the National Party, and we've seen it, we've had it recited over the weeks following this case, the Jamie Lee Rosses, etc. I'm not going to enumerate them again like Guy Espiner did so funereally on the radio. Is there still a problem with that production line coming through? No, I think we have turned a corner, and in fairness to Mr Uffendale, he's probably died a million deaths in the last week. I bet. Uh, because his behaviour at secondary school at King's was pretty unimpressive. But then I just heard today um, a very senior person told me that apparently King's has had this institutional bullying for many, many years. And very early on in your career at King's, if you were a third former, you were dealt to, uh, and what was described to me was pretty appalling behaviour. Is it limited to boys' schools? No, because yesterday someone told me about the experience of her granddaughter at Wellington Girls, and they had to move her. Mm. So there is a, and I could go through all the various schools, so there is a, a bullying problem in colleges in this country and how you stamp it out, I do not know. The I always remember the uh, Presbyterian minister at uh, St John's in Willow Street telling me about his days at Wellington College. He said it was like Lord of the Flies. So, yes, there's a problem. And, uh, of course, the, the, the culture at Otago University, which many people relate to and think is funny, I find repellent. Uh, and so Mr. Uffendall's career as a, uh, a flatmate of his cobbers down in Otago has had a good airing as well. Mm. Um, it raises a very interesting question about whether the behaviour uh, of a teenager or a young student should be a barrier to entry into the political world. I don't actually think so. Mm. I think he's probably atoned for his uh, his uh, errors, and I think that he's probably um, grown up a hell of a lot. And so there's that issue as opposed to what we hear going on in the Labour Party at the moment, and that is allegations of bullying um, against and by MPs. So that's two different matters. But it's a very long-winded way of saying I don't necessarily think the errors of your youth uh, should get in the way of you playing a part in public life. You talk in the book a bit, though, about competence, which is, which is an important principle, and you, I mean, you're not, you, don't, you don't line that up as a polar opposite to diversity, but competence first. And I guess I wonder, leaving almost to one side Sam Uffendall's past being dredged up, mm. when you look at that line-up for the Tauranga by-election you know, the shortlist that was presented. It looked like they'd come out of a 3D printer almost, you know. I mean, surely that's not going to be... It would take some fluke for that to be the most competent people who could take that seat, right? Well, I'd, I think they presented to the people of Tauranga what I guess the people of Tauranga wanted. Mm. And it's a really good question. When you look at the... Uh, Tory party contest following the, well, I think the economists called it the clown fall, the mm. demise of Boris Johnson. Several candidates have stepped forward. Now, Mr Sunak is the MP for a Yorkshire seat called Richmond. One, of, I think it was Leon Britton's seat and then uh, uh, the fellow who was the leader of the opposition for a period um, and then foreign secretary. And then you've got various other candidates um, of Asian or African uh, background who are standing in very staunch Tory seats yeah. that you would expect to be 
sort of bastions of the white middle class. Yeah. So maybe could more be done in that area? The answer is probably yes, because when I was there between 2014 and 2017, the list had ensured that we had a very diverse caucus, but mm. so many of them were swept away uh, given the calamity of 2020. I mean, you talk about Britain, and that was a David Cameron project, I think, a quite that, deliberate David Cameron project quite a to, del- to, to introduce diversity into the ranks. Yes, and that, so they did that, and I was thinking of William Hague, because of William Hague's seat up oh, in yes. Richmond, and it's now Sunak's seat. But what Hague did, uh, and I think it was head office, you'd have to, if you want to stand for parliament, you go to head office, they would sign off that you're not crazy or bankrupt or whatever, and then you get the approval from head office and you can go out and stand for the nomination of various seats, and that's how Sunak got Richmond. We've used the list to provide diversity Mm. uh, without basing it too much on the electorate, but as you well know, it's the party vote that matters. The party vote would bring those people into parliament. One of the things that you talk about in your relatively few regrets is you regret not voting for Stephen Joyce ahead of Simon Bridges when the opportunity presented itself. Do you think things would have panned out differently if Stephen Joyce had been the leader over those years? Well, we wouldn't have had the Jamie Lee Ross debacle, Mm. and I think he would have brought a bit more managerial competence. Whether he would have stayed the distance as leader is another story, but after a long period in office... um, and Haig's a good example. John Major exited stage right and William Haig took over, mm. but the electorate wasn't really wanting to listen mm. to him and possibly they could have had a more senior person like Kenneth Baker just to settle the troops, get the show um, on the road again after the disastrous 1997 election. Someone like that, uh, someone like Joyce, I think on balance would have been better for the party. Would he have been Prime Minister? I Probably, given the way it all panned out, probably not, but he would have provided that maturity that I think is required. You regret also not chucking it in more quickly after the 2017 election. Yeah, I shouldn't have taken up the seat. Um, and you had, it sounds like you had a pretty miserable time in that, that, that year that you stayed in. Was it about a year that you stayed, stayed It was in? about a year, yeah. and I hated every minute of it, apart <laughs> from my um, bill to reform the law of contempt, which kept me there. Mm. All the treaty settlement legislation was mine. I got very, I wasn't really frontline or regarded as frontline, so I didn't get the chance to ask questions. I had actually asked English if I could get the commerce brief because I was really interested in copyright, mm. and um, I was... So I got that, was working away with Andrew Bailey, and when Bridges took over, I got my old portfolios back minus intelligence. And I should have, yeah, it was a bad mistake. I should have gone earlier. In fact, well, not taken up my seat because uh, that last year was hellish. What if, though, it would have been better for the National Party had you, maybe Bill English, a few others, stayed on even being a bit miserable for a while, you know, becoming an elder statesman, providing a bit of that kind of sobriety, call it what you like, to militate against some of the uh, unexpected, melodramatic, self-indulgent behaviours that came through. There's there not an argument that actually stay on, hold the course. Oh, yeah, and people like Nathan did. Nathan Guy yeah. stayed on the full three-year term, as did Nicky Wagner. Look, that's a perfectly legitimate argument, but I was, from the time that um, it was one of my few conversations with Jamie Lee Ross, yeah. uh, he said, oh, you're going to be in that office, and everyone knew that was the the waiting room for the crematorium. And then uh, he and Paula ensured I didn't have a speaking spot at the 2018 conference, and I basically had checked out. And so, yeah, if English had stayed, and Jonathan Coleman was a serious loss, as indeed was Joyce, but the, uh, most of us sort of said, well, there's no future here, and we pitched our tents uh, somewhere else. Jamie Lee Ross, again, and some of those other ones. I remember Jamie Lee Ross wrote a piece for the spin-off, uh, which I commissioned when he was in the United States uh, on a on a trip going to some of the Republican convention. He went to the Republican convention? I think he did. Yes. Anyway, he talked at length 
or at least a paragraph length, which as much as you gave Ben Thomas, so, but equally effusively, <laughs> about House of Cards. And I sort of wondered, I'm partly prompted by the title of your book, whether there is something to be said about a particular generation or a particular group within a generation of politicians, particularly the National Party, but maybe across the board, who have watched too much House of Cards and not enough Yes Minister. Oh, I think that's an excellent question. I think that's probably right. But he probably has also watched too much Star Wars because (laughs) apparently he used to walk around and his ringtone was the Imperial March. And so he was basically uh, in a very strange place. And I think he saw himself uh, as the, possibly saw himself as the chief whip in the House of Cards. Mm. uh, And that was a superb program, but if Yes Minister is not simply a comedy, it is a documentary, and I think one of the most outstanding pieces of work ever to appear on the screen, uh, and I still watch it and learn. <laughs> I, w- I was half expecting there to be more about the civil service or the public service, which is really what, what, what Yes Minister is about for the most part, about that relationship. That constant tension between the two of them where the minister wants to do certain things about an inquiry mm. into the sale of arms to Italians and he says, but Humphrey, this is exactly what the Prime Minister wants to hear about. I think you'll find, Minister, it's exactly what the Prime Minister doesn't want to hear about. And you just sort of, it's just truth played out the whole time. You... You do get into that a bit, not a lot in the book, but you do get into it a, a, a bit. I think at one point you're talking about in your role as Attorney General, which which you you know you put on the cover of the book too. It's obviously mm. an incredibly important role in our democracy. You, I think, the words you use to describe it is that sometimes officials would put recommendations before you, but you weren't going to approach them as if you were, were an automaton, if I've pronounced that correctly. Mm. Are there some ministers who just do? I mean, is that how does it work in New Zealand? Is there some sense in which there are ministers who just go in and rubber stamp stuff that's put before them? Well, I think it was the great Douglas Hurd who said there are three kinds of ministers. The no-hopers, and they're gone fairly quickly. Hmm. And I'm not going to name names, but you can see them in all parties. And then there are those who are perfectly competent, but basically do what the civil servants want. And then there are those who have their own agenda uh, and the civil service bends to their will. Now, it didn't always happen with me. I had some ideas for reforms. Take, for example, I wanted to abolish all administrative tribunals like you know, the Copyright Tribunal and the mm. Immigration and Protection Tribunal and have one super administrative tr- uh, tribunal run by specialist judges as a division of the district court. And I've never seen the Ministry of Justice so engaged in trying to kill a project. It wasn't their idea. Linked to the Attorney-General and your overall kind of approach to politics and to writing this book is this idea of the rule of law. Mm. Sometimes I think people's eyes glaze over when they start hearing about stuff like that. It seems academic. It seems sort of arcane. What's, why is it not? Why is it so important? To oh, everything? I think it was best answered by Alan Greenspan when asked what's the most important aspect of Uh, economic growth, in your opinion, Mr Greenspan, the rule of law. And if you don't have Mm. the rule of law, you have what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, that's at an international level. You have all the problems that we have in the Pacific, that we're seeing in the Pacific at the moment, and I won't go into too much detail because I'm professionally involved in some of them. Mm. Uh, And then you see what's happened in the, the great republic, the United States. You see what's happened in the oldest democracy, Uh, the United Kingdom because of the appalling behaviour of Mr Johnson and others, and you realise that the rule of law is a tender flower. Uh, Another example would be in Hungary, an emerging democracy, and uh, what Viktor Orban is doing with the judges. So if you don't have respect for the rule of law, you cannot have a liberal democracy, and you cannot really see your people achieve their potential. Is that the kind of conversation that happens in Parliament among elected members, or is that the sort of seen as a rarefied... Oh, no, they'd think I was a tosser. Yeah, okay. So you don't discuss the rule of law or, or I guess, concepts, abstract concepts in Cabinet meetings? Oh, yeah, I can recall recall one discussion um, over a particular piece of legislation, Hmm. which I think John Key thought was going to receive a Section 7 report, 
and he said... What does that mean? Oh, it, it was going to be said to be in breach of the Bill of Rights uh-huh. in respect. Okay. And, and he said, you and Judith are to go away and sort this out. I do not want a Section 7 report. Sort it. So Key instinctively, without articulating it in sort of the abstract way that I have, mm. understood exactly what I was talking about. Because it was one of the critical roles of the Attorney, G- Attorney General, is one of the critical roles of the Attorney General to pass and examine legislation to ensure that it's consistent with the Bill of Rights. Yeah, when the Bill of Rights, uh, if legislation is about to be introduced, take the three strikes legislation, yeah. members' bill, uh, and it would happen with private bills or public bills as well, um, someone in the Ministry of Justice or a part of the team would look at it and then they would refer a draft report to me uh, and I would have to consider whether to sign it, amend it or reject it and then once taken, in that case I reflected on it, saw that there were problems with it, signed off on it uh, and that report is introduced to the House. The rule of law is a, is, a, is, a, is a concept that is also seized upon or a version of it by groups like Hobson's Pledge, uh, you know, in terms of the one law for all. Yeah, slightly, di- you're quite right, one law. Well, that's, I mean, the it's, rule it's, of it's one linked. Law. It's linked, though, isn't it? I mean, in, in, in their minds, it's, 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 it's certainly rhetoric that's, that's deployed. And I guess, well, I guess the question I would ask you is, do you think that Māori in New Zealand have consistently enjoyed the rule of law over the decades? Oh, Lord, no. And so you come across Parihaka where habeas corpus was suspended, where people were pushed off their land, where they were imprisoned without trial, all those sorts of things. You come across uh, Ropatu. Uh, you come across uh, public works takings. It, it was... This is not sort of hyperbole. If there was general land to be taken or or, or Maori land to be taken for, under the Public Works Act for a road, the Maori land was always taken. And when the Tūri Whenua was passed all those years ago, the Maori land law, um, dealing with landlocked land and so on, so much Maori land was landlocked. So were they given the same rights and privileges as... Pākehā New Zealanders, it is my considered view, and I'm no wild-eyed radical, they didn't. You mentioned Parihaka and one of your responsibilities as the Minister for Treaty Negotiations. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of detail, but also the other side of that was fronting up, representing the Crown which you're not personally mm. responsible, but you are, you mm. are there, you are the personification of the crown in those moments, and, and, and making apologies. And for something like Parihaka, that's a big one. I mean, that's, that must have... Tell me, tell me about just how that, how that felt to be there and be, issue that apology and, and oh, see, see the response. It was a very strange day, and what had happened was that I was just about ready to conclude the Taranaki negotiation, mm. and Paul Swain, the former Labour MP, who was my chief negotiator, came and said, oh, there's the issue of Parihaka. I said, we've resolved that. No, we haven't. And so we, uh, I wasn't very happy about that, mm. but we had to then devise how we were going to deal with Parihaka, and there had been previous attempts to apologise, but they had been apologies initiated by the Crown, almost imposed on Parihaka. Right. And so we needed to work through with Parihaka about what they wanted. And then there was that day when we apologised. I remember talking to Dame Shana Elias, then Chief Justice, and said, off to Parihaka, and she was very interested. I said, oh, do you want to come? Yes, please. But given that uh, it was... Justice Prendergast who made orders against various people. So she turned up, Andrew Little turned up. It was an ex- um, Winston Peters didn't, but then that's not surprising. It was an extraordinary day, and they were watching very, very closely as the apology was given. Is this sincere or is it pro forma? Because you're, I mean, obviously an intellectual, you're cerebral, and sometimes might seem a bit detached. Indeed, you uh, speak disparagingly about the emotions of politics. But there, on a day like that, you cannot escape the emotions. You must have, were you, did you feel sort of a depth of emotion on that day? Oh, yes, indeed. I didn't necessarily 
show it, but mm. it was an emotional day. Uh, I think the only time I, I ever teared up was when I was giving an apology to Taranaki Iwi, mm. and they performed a dance um, that hadn't been performed for 80 years or something. So it was... And also, I was acutely conscious when I apologised to Hui, uh, who have been treated very badly through history. Um, and even now, it continues. Um, your good friend and colleague, Heather Duplessis Allen, was interviewing me last night and was getting stuck into me about co governance and the Uruweras. Uh, and it was readily apparent to me that she had not a little knowledge but quite a lot of prejudice against Tuhoi, with the greatest of respect to, to Heather. Mm. Right. I, I, haven't, I haven't listened to that. I'll catch Good. up with it. No, so I wouldn't, I can't, I I can't, I can't, wouldn't I bother. Speak for her. <laughs> well, I mean, let's talk about um, Tuhoi or Uruwera a bit, maybe. I was going to ask you to address co-governance, which obviously has become a hot potato issue. For, yeah, one, for need, one of a better cliche. It needn't be if it's properly looked at. Well, well, well let me try this then. Just because I think that it's become misrepresented and complicated can be confusing. The three waters thing possibly is a very confused, layered application of it. If you were going to explain co-governance, if could you try and explain co-governance as if to an intelligent foreigner who was visiting New Zealand in the simple terms, what it is, where it comes from, maybe maybe with reference to Uruwera or to, to yeah. Wanganui that you worked on. Well, I'd start off by saying what it's not. Hmm. It's not co-government. There is one sovereign in this country. But where you have indigenous people who have a deep and abiding connection with, for example, a natural resource, then why not enter into a treaty partnership with them so that they can bring their commitment uh, and their interest and their learning to the uh, table for the benefit of the particular resource, be it a river that needs to be cleaned up uh, or a lake uh, or a national park. And so I, didn't, I see no problem uh, with co-governance in that respect. I think it's a very good thing. It responds to the particular aspirations and expectations of the Indigenous people uh, and it doesn't harm the situation for the general public one little bit. And what about Three Waters? How's that turned into such a such a hellscape? Well, I don't think it's not, not my task to defend the current government and it's for the current generation of MPs to debate over, but I just don't think people are getting out there and are explaining just what co-governance is and is not. Uh, and they're also conflating... Um, initiatives which may be undertaken with co-governance. I don't see the Maori Health Authority as co-governance. I see it as a particular initiative which may be the subject of political debate between the left and the right. Mm. And the argument of the left will be, look, when you go on a marae, you see so many people with serious dental problems. Um, diabetes is a serious problem. I could go through the list. If we have a Maori Health Authority that really zeroes in on some of these issues, who's ultimately going to benefit? Well, the New Zealand taxpayer, I would have thought. So that's the argument on the left. Mm. The argument on the right is, well, do we need a proliferation of authorities or do we have one body? Is the centralising of uh, health to be administered through one body uh, an efficient means of dealing with these issues? So you can have that kind of debate. And... I just don't think the current government gets out and articulates just what exactly it wants. And it's really no answer for Willie to say to David Seymour, who raises questions, I think, in a very mature and deliberate way, oh, he's a racist, because demonstrably he's not a racist, he's raising questions. Engage in the debate. Beat the person on the detail uh, but argument by epithet is not particularly effective. Mm, and you return to that a few times. You sort of ask for a principled and civil discussion, um, and that's... I don't think anyone would really disagree with that in well, theory. It's just so hard. It's so hard to achieve when it's such a hot-button topic, and people get accused of dog-whistling, and other people get a few accused yeah. of it. I mean, how do... It's just a... It's, how do you convene that debate, I suppose, is the question. Well, I think... Uh, Maybe you stay away from too much social media. I mean, yeah. Twitter cannot encourage sensible 
and decent debate in this country. And, I mean, Judith was always tweeting all around the place. It never never went anywhere. Um, there is nothing better than mastering the arguments of your opponents and engaging in the debate civilly but vigorously for the public benefit. That's what politicians need to do. How do you do it? People need to change their ways. Judith's blocked me on Twitter, so I have struggled to have a debate with her of any form in that particular medium. Hey, um, the, the, the UK, I'm interested just how many, I almost feel like there are more people, more Brits that are <laughs> cited in your book than New Zealanders at one point. You know, Dominic Grieve is there, David Cameron and various lords. Margaret Thatcher uh, looms large over the book. Are you are you an Anglophile or is it just the is it just the the inheritance of the judicial and parliamentary system? No, I I really fallen out of love with the United fallen Kingdom because I think that. Um, the Brexit debate was appalling and that's what happens when you have people peddling lies and dealing with social media in a totally shallow kind of way. And uh, yes, I do refer to Dominic Grieve, whom I knew as Attorney General, a very good man who Mm. was chucked out of the Tory party for taking a principled stand, as was Churchill's grandson, as was Kenneth Baker, who'd served 49 years in the House of Commons. These were good people, uh, and a charlatan uh, treated them, a charlatan and a plagiarist treated them appallingly badly and expected loyalty from them when he gave no loyalty to anyone. And uh, so I think Britain's in for a pretty rough time and they thoroughly deserve it. So, but no, the, the, the kind of people that I mentioned people like Douglas Hurd and Dominic Grieve, hmm. your quintessential liberal conservatives who know that they're heirs to both traditions uh, and govern the country, I think, particularly well. And they're the sort of people that I identify with in politics. And I think it's one of the tragedies, for example, of the United States that that dreadful man has taken over the Republican Party and utterly perverted it. And so the old North... Northeastern Liberal Republicans or Rockefeller Republicans are now a dying breed, and those sort of sunny Western conservatives like Reagan would be regarded as out of place. It's all about hmm. the cult of loyalty to someone who, emotionally at least, remains a seven-year-old. I mean, as someone said to me, the real problem with uh, Donald Trump, he's got two major problems. He has no class, and to quote what was said about the Reverend Falwell by Christopher Hitchens when he died, if you gave Trump an enema, uh, you could bury him in a matchbox. (laughs) Isn't no class. I mean, it's a dangerous game to try and draw too many parallels between the UK and the US, but is something that links both Boris Johnson and Donald Trump is they don't have any shame. I sometimes look at them as sort of shameless. Well, when Johnson had his last question time in the house and finished with Hasta la Vista, baby, the guy's got no class. But you make a very valid point that these are people for whom lying comes naturally. Mm. And so to that extent, you're right, there is no shame. And they expect this blind almost Fuhrer-like loyalty, but they never give it. And so how two great political parties like the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln and Eisenhower and so on, could have elected that man is an interesting, fascinating historical question. Do you have an answer to that? Uh, well, I, don't, I think that Hillary Clinton was probably one of the worst candidates you could have on the other side, and she contemptuously referred to flyover country. I think a lot of people were left behind mm-hmm. and a lot of rage. The deplorables. The deplorables. But speaking about your fellow citizens in that way is not particularly smart. I wouldn't have thought. Didn't Mitt Romney say something about the the 47% or so on? But you, so, can't, you can't attribute what's happened to the Republicans or to the Tories in the UK to the other party. No, 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 you're quite right. And so I'm just saying that she was almost the perfect candidate uh-huh. for Trump to uh-huh. stand against. But how did Trump arise? General anger, a feeling of being left out, uh, incredibly 
clever communicator through Twitter and so on, mm. but um, a, a man whose instincts were base and vile. Have you been following the latest news out of Australia with relation to Scott Morrison? Well, no, I just read it this morning and was <laughs> utterly dumbfounded that he was secretly appointing himself to ministerial roles yes. so the Governor-General knew but no one else did so that he could step in and make decisions. It seems unbelievably unconstitutional. I just can't fathom it. Yeah, it seems farcical, and I, I don't know. Is that is that the sort of thing that could happen here? You know, as a as Attorney-General, was that something you would expect to be involved in? Well, oh, you'd blow your top. Yeah. And you'd trigger a resignation, I would have thought. Right. I mean, the, the, what's the essential role of the attorney to ensure that the business of government is conducted in accordance with the rule of law? Well, I would have thought that if you're appointing yourself to those sorts of positions in that way, you're undermining the rule of law. Margaret Thatcher has uh, featured in the Conservative leadership race, which I'm, I'm sure you've been following with um, Rishi Sunak, who you've talked about before, and Liz Truss going head-to-head, both trying to, in some ways, um, out-thatcher each other to some mm. degree. Uh, do you think that's a good thing? That Thatcher's, you're, you're, you're a big Thatcher, big Thatcher fan. Oh, I, well, I, I did... Um, I, I just grew up in the 70s and knew the British lethargy, mm. and uh, Callaghan was actually not a bad Prime Minister, but Harold Wilson was a flop, and Britain needed an injection. And I always remember an Economist uh, article about Margaret Thatcher saying she would die a very boring old lady. But for the period that she was there, she did a good job. But like many politicians, she stayed too long and began to think she was indispensable. But I would have thought that 40 years on, uh, hell, getting up to 45 years on, um, trying to go back to sort of the Thatcherite Time. It's out mm. of time. The problems facing the United Kingdom are completely different. And she's almost become more of a mascot to them, I think, she's rather a, than a, I a philosophy. Whether, I doubt whether Liz Truss would know much about Mrs Thatcher. The, the other line which I enjoyed in your book, you were talking about, I think you were, I think you might have been recently at the Pope's swearing, and that's probably the wrong term, what do you call it? Oh, his inaugural mass. His inaugural mass, yeah, yes. Yeah. And Anne Applebaum, you were discussing with her whether or not it would have been better to have been at Margaret Thatcher's As Jerry general. was, that's right. That's right. And, and your line is, Thatcher was greater than the Pope, or you agreed with that proposition. <laughs> and I thought that was interesting that you put, put that in there, because it's obviously, a, you know, politics and religion is an interesting, interesting tension sometimes. Is yeah. that is that does that was that was that quite deliberate that that line? Oh no, I just found Mrs. Thatcher extremely funny when obviously she wasn't intending to be. She gave that speech to the Presbyterian ministers in Scotland, yeah. which was called the Sermon on the Mound, uh, lecturing them about self reliance and why the gospel talks about self reliance, and these sort of left left wing redistributionists couldn't really cope. So I don't think she ever meant to be funny because she was a rather stern Methodist. But she, uh, I found that some of her lines could be extremely hilarious. But have you had your politics come into tension with your faith at any point? You're a, you're a, you're a practicing Catholic, is that right? Oh yeah, but I've I've never. I don't think uh, you don't. Do Jesus in the New Zealand Parliament, uh-huh. and I spoke to someone who went in there, Paolo Garcia, and I said, "Now, Paolo, in your maiden speech, don't really go down that route, because I know him, how devout a Christian he was, mm. and he did it, and it, it jars. This is a secular country, and uh, if I was ever dealing with issues, I'd try and find a secular response rather than start talking about uh, the good Lord. Why, well, in fact, I can assure you, I never did." No, I don't have any recollection of you doing that. But it is it is an interesting question, I think, in terms of... Well, I, look, I'm not a religious person, mm. but I respect people who have those faith. And I, I guess one of the things I sometimes grapple with is if, for example, with Christopher Luxon, it holds these views about abortion, is it possible really to ring-fence that from your politics? Oh, I think that you have to... I mean, my view on abortion is that I don't know when life begins um, and I don't know when life ends because there are these blurry Mm. periods. I acknowledge that my views, which come from mainstream Catholicism, are 
in many respects out of place uh, in a secular New Zealand. And so I can't go around imposing my views on people. I would have, this is where I think the United States have got it completely wrong. On the one hand, you have people who would be in favour of partial birth abortions, and then you are those who say nothing from the moment of conception. Yeah. I would have thought sensible people could get together and work out some kind of compromise which would get the damn topic off the, out of the headlines. Let's talk a, bit, a little bit about John Key, just to round things off. You're, you, you, you're glowing about, about John Key. Um, and it's interesting because there are people, including many on the right, who are dismissive of John Key as being, um, you know, centrist, overly pragmatic, incrementalist. What's your response to those who, I guess, for want of a better word, diss John Key on the basis of his lack of kind of ideological purity or ambition? Yeah, well, no one would ever accuse me of writing hagiographies, mm. and so my assessment of him, I can assure you, is pretty sober, and I wouldn't praise unless I believed it, but I've just saw too many examples of where the guy was compassionate the day of the second Pike River explosion, unbelievably committed to a particular cause. And so take, for example, um, the night uh, Richard Taylor phoned me and said, oh, Peter's got a problem with the unions and so on. Do you think the Prime Minister could see him in the next sort of couple of weeks? And Key said, oh, I'll to come down now. And we sorted it out and he... John went and negotiated with the Warners people and so on, and that basically saved the film industry. So really committed to doing things well, and but very high standards. And he, so the, the idea that he was a bit centrist, well, actually, I don't think centrism's such a bad thing. He wasn't actually, he was slightly to the right of centre, but uh, you're quintessential liberal conservative, and we need those sorts of people in politics. Um, if um, I'd... I've got a lot to be grateful to Don Brash for. He was mm -hmm. very kind to me personally, but we would have been a one-term government uh, with him. And I know Jim Bolger tells me about his time with Ruth Richardson as Minister of Finance. It comes back to what someone once advised uh, Mrs Thatcher. Politics is not about the rigid application of dogma, but the management of prejudice and the reconciliation of interests. And that's where I thought Key was so good. There have been a bunch of books come out lately, which is wonderful, I think. <laughs> a lot of political books. Have you been reading them? Yes, and I think the, my publishers have been very good in getting some stuff out there. Um, the book by Gareth on Jeanette, mm. and uh, there, there is, of course, uh, Andrea's book, Blue Blood, mm. and she interviewed me, and she said, do you want to be off the record? And I said, I'm more of an on-the-record sort of a chap. Mm. Um, and so um, that will be of interest to people for a short time. Do you think her thesis was right in that? I mean, as far as there was a thesis, I'm thinking of the argument that National needs to know what it stands for better and that as long as it's only trying to be around to knock the other guy out, that it... Well, a lot of people say that that's about what conservatism is. Is it? It's about... What is it? Um, the best conservative government is you you, you filch Whig policies, mm. but you, you you administer them in a conservative mm. kind of way. Mm. There is an element to that, uh, and sometimes when you're talking about freedom and so, it can get all a bit fuzzy and vague and pompous. And so there is that. There's certainly that element. Um, but um, yeah, I think that her thesis was right between 2017 and 2020 the National Party stood for one thing and that is talking about itself and these rather unimpressive people instead of talking about the issues that concern New Zealanders um, we're getting it totally wrong and someone told me that um, in the six weeks before the 2020 election the articles that were the least read hmm were articles on the National Party. People had switched off. What about the um, books by Simon Bridges and Judith Collins? Did you devour those? I don't think I've read Simon's book. I read Judith's book, um, which she was wanting to exact a little utu. Um, but, um, I mean, that's that sort of genre is perfectly acceptable. But I don't think we... One of the reasons I wrote my book on treaty settlements and, mm. and this other little sketch is because so often history is written by the left 
and the right can be airbrushed out of history. I mean, I I always recall Dame Anne Salmond wrote a book on the return to New Zealand of Taonga, and I think one of the early chapters was on the Motunui panels, and she was interviewed by Kim Hill on Radio New Zealand one Saturday morning, and I listened to the interview because I was so interested in the issue. Uh, I wasn't mentioned once, but I was the person who got the Motunui panels back, and I'd had an interest in them for over 20 years. And But I was airbrushed out of history. My views were not important. The first You mentioned the first book in a kind of... A kind of trilogy, I guess, a kind of Finlayson trilogy. The first one was Hekupu Todangi, which was about treaty settlements, and co-written with the advisor that you mentioned before, yeah, Mr. Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, first class. Um, and now we have this book, which is very much about the, the, the years in Parliament with some other bits. And then the third book is going to be a opus about the rule of law. Yeah, well, the former English law lord, Lord Bingham, wrote a a fantastic little work on the rule of law, but he's been dead for about 10 years now, and I don't think he would have anticipated how severely understrained the rule of law could be. And by that, I do not mean, as I say in the book, the rule rule of judges, which would be the United States, which is unhelpful, or worse still, the rule of lawyers. It's the rule of law. And so what I want to do is get together with the Dominic Greaves. If I can get hold of a Jody Wilson-Raybould who was done in by Trudeau, yeah. she was the Attorney General in Canada, and the book's dedicated to her, actually. Yeah. Uh, and even someone like Jeff Sessions, who was Trump's first Attorney General, fired the day after the midterms because he wouldn't bend Trump's will. But I think to get some former Attorneys General together... Like to, a supergroup of Attorneys General. Uh, whatever you'd call it. The a, Avengers. A, a conspiracy the Suicide Squad. Yeah. Uh, just, no, to talk about some of these issues yeah. because they're relevant and they matter for the sorts of countries that we represented. Well, thank you very much for coming. And last thing, really, you have been quite clear in the book that you're done with politics, but mm. I just wanted to check that you're absolutely ruling out a return to Parliament. You've missed the opportunity to stand for the Wellington Mayor, but it I could be... Paul Eagle will do a good Well, job. If, and if so, then there'll be a by-election in Rongatai, so maybe that's your opportunity to have another round. What, and go to public meetings in Happy Valley and yeah. have my flesh creep, exactly. forget it. Exactly, Forget it, I'm finished. But I, before I finally go off into the sunset... There is that third book. And are you having a lovely time back at the bar? Oh, yes, I enjoy what I'm doing, but I also enjoy being back in the arts. I'm on mm. the Adam Foundation that sponsors quite a number of things. The government very kindly put me on the board of the NZSO, and that's my first, I'm frankly, my first love, classical music. And if you, I don't know whether you saw the Beethoven cycle up here um, over the weekend. It was superlative Hilary Hahn in Wellington. The week before, the NZSO is having its 75th anniversary. It's a superb orchestra. And so that kind of thing is mo- really enjoyable. We didn't actually get to touch on that. You're, there's, a, there's a fascinating chapter on, on your role as Arts Minister, and we had a chance to cover your contemptible comments about Ralph Hortere, and we'll let you off those for now. <laughs> Nor the excellent chapter on uh, being Minister for the Spooks, the first kind of non-Prime Minister Minister for the Scoop. So Spooks, so people have to get the book to read those. Um, but I look forward to chatting again when the when the third in the trilogy comes out. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Kia ora e te iwi. Te Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.